Good morning. I felt it in my soul. I was like, what was that? In Jesus' name. Um, morning, those in person, those online. Ooh, you brought two. May God bless and keep you, like prayer of Jabez style. Thank you, Mal. And you were singing, and then you put your hand in the air, and then you smiled. And I'm just going to keep talking as you're walking away, because I know you like attention. <laughs> Giving people microphones is dangerous, guys. Never forget that. If you have a wedding coming up, guard the mic, all right? Trauma. A little bit. Welcome to Brooke. <laughs> I think that we can connect together um, for this moment and in this way. Man. If you have a Bible, grab it. The words um, for the passages will be on the screen. We're going to cover a selection of passages, because really two um, texts that we're gonna, we want to go deep in uh, more than the others. The first is going to be Psalm 32, so if you want to go in and meet us there, you can do that. And then the, the latter will be Habakkuk chapter 3 and Taylor um, read that and, and prayed for us as well. Um, we are still in the series. Tomorrow is a Monday. It's actually going to carry us through the rest of the year. And essentially what we've been doing is we've been looking at various themes within the, the Christian faith, and we've been trying to connect the dots um, from the Christian faith to everyday life. And so we looked at the first theme, and we looked at the idea of experiencing and pursuing biblical community as a whole adult human you know, nine to five and all that entails. Uh, the last two weeks we were diving into the reality of faith um, and what does it look like to have an everyday, simplistic, but courageous faith. And, and Neil led us in that last week and then he just absolutely slaughtered it and it was really, really, really impactful and encouraging. And um, this week, just for one week, we're going to look at what does it look like to deal when we don't desire God. So what does it look like to deal with a a disappearing or an absent desire for God. What do we do when we don't desire God? All right? Now, um, I want to be very clear that there's a, there's a tone um, that, that I want this particular sermon, this message to, to have, and there's a trajectory that I want us to, to move towards. And, and it's best to say it like this. It would be an absolute failure, um, not on God, but on me. It'd be a failure if we walk away from this message today and, and what we thought, what we sensed, what we felt, what we believed was that the primary thing we needed to do was force our way into feeling something again. That would be a failure. It would be a failure if we walked away, we, we believe that the primary thing we need to do is to, to force our way into particular activity. That would be a failure. Because that's not even how desire works. Desire isn't something that you force. Desire is something that is fostered. Example, you notice, I notice, my present experience. Man, turkey bacon does something to me and not a good something. I don't like it. Arguments have taken place in our marriage because of it. Because it smells like holy swine until you taste it. And you're like, what is this? This is a beta switch. But because, in Jesus' name, but because I love my wife, and I'm like, divorce, that's not an option. Particularly over turkey, come on. Man. Like, I'm like, yo, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to try hard. And so year one, you're just like, Plowing through this cardboard, you know, year two, plowing through this cardboard, and 
you know, we're at year 12. And I'm like, no, nah, I just, I tried. You can't force desire. You can't force your way into feeling or enjoying certain things. Yes, we know this. That's not the way desire works. You can't force your way into it, but you know what we do? We can foster it. We can put it into our lives, habits, and rhythms, and practices that foster desire. And as it relates to desire for God, that's really what God invites us to do is to foster desire for him. And when we fight for desire for God, what we do is we really lean into the reality that he is fighting on our behalf for us. And so the song that we just sung, he's never lost. That is our hope. That we can join God in the fight for desire. God desires for us to desire him. In fact, God's desire for us is our desire for him. God wants us to want him. And that becomes the fuel to actually pursuing him. Let me just read these things over us. God's desire for us. Isaiah 55, the entire chapter is is rich. Um, there's going to be a lot of scriptures that are going to be in our in the app so that you can just hold it for your own personal edification. But Isaiah 55 reads like this. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Come to the water, and you without silver, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choices of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of faithful kindness of David. He's saying, come. Come and experience goodness and gladness and satisfaction. Come. This is Jesus' words in John 7, uh, 38. At the last day, the most important day of the feast, after everybody has already had their feel of good wine, he gets up and he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come. This is Jesus again in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all of you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come. This was a call of worship this morning. To anyone, come. That that is the offer that God is pronouncing this tremendous desire for people, that they would experience him. Do you know that gladness is not a secondary issue in Christianity? It is not like God is like, here's all the lists of stuff I want you to do, and then enjoy me later. Like, our gladness in God is core to what it means to be a Christian. And God says, come, experience and enjoy me. Have desire for me. It's desire that feels and is expressed in an ever-increasing sense of his presence, an ever-increasing sense of delight, And gladness, emphasis on the ever-increasing, which means that it keeps going and it goes and it goes. An ever-increasing resolve to remain, an ever-increasing devotion. That is what God is saying. Come and experience that type of desire. And when we track desire throughout the scriptures, what we see is it's more than delight. It's more than just an internal, emotional, effectual feeling. It's more than delight. Biblical desire is both delight 
and devotion, more scriptures. Uh, this is Isaiah 26, 8 through 9. Yes, Lord, we wait for you in the path of your judgments. Our desire is for your name and renown. I long for you in the night. Yes, my spirit within me diligently seeks you. There is this internal affection, this internal sense of gladness and delight that is leading to external actions. It's delight. There's more. Psalm 48. I delight to do your will, my God. And your instruction is deep within me. There's more. Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, these people approach me with their speeches. They honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and human rules direct their worship of me. This is a rebuke, but there's revelation in the rebuke. What he's revealing in this rebuke is, I don't just want activity. I want your affections. I want your heart. There's more. This is Malachi 1.13. Again, he's like, he's rebuking them. He's like, I don't just want activity, he says, you bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hand, asked the Lord? You are doing a lot of stuff. You are punching in to the Christian clock. There's ritual. But I don't want that. I want your heart. It's delight. But it's not merely delight. This is John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But if there's this internal sense of love for me, desire for me, it will be expressed in actions. You will do stuff. Namely, the keeping of my commandments. This is 1 John 5, 3. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commandments. And his commandments are not a burden. Biblical desire is both delight and devotion. And we can't force that. We can't force that. We can't will ourselves into that type of delight or into that type of devotion. All we could do is foster it. And God invites us to foster it well. And part of fostering it well is understanding that there are moments when it's just not there. We just don't have it. Maybe that's where you are right now. You just don't have it. You don't feel it. And you're not doing. You sense that. that it is such a disorienting experience. I'm talking to them, guys, I'm, not, I'm really talking to Christians right now. And it's such a disorienting experience when you have been walking with Jesus, when you feel something for him and your life has been marked by devotion, but you just don't feel it anymore. And you're not doing it anymore. And there's shame and there's fear. Is this the pathway to finally leaving you? And all of those questions, it's so disorienting to get to a place when you don't desire God. All of us will experience that in some shape, form, or fashion. And I just, on the front end, again, tone and trajectory, it is not force our way back into something. It's fostering and believing that there's a God who fights for us and responding to that lack of desire well by diagnosing where it's coming from and then responding accordingly. And so the rest of our time is to look at the way that the scriptures seem to talk about 
what causes desire to dwindle and eventually disappear. All desire or the lack of desire is not equal. They come from different places and they're experienced differently. However, God still wants us to come. We're going to look at what I think are three causes of desire to dwindle. Look at the scriptures. See what the scripture is saying. Give a consideration that we might have in light of the scripture and an action that we might take in light of the scripture. And then we'll close our time. So three different causes for desire to dwindle or disappear. Consideration, action, and then close. Um, the first one is Psalm 32. And when I say first, I don't necessarily mean that it's what we often run into. I'm just saying that it's where we're going to start because it makes the most sense seasonally as well. Psalm 32, 1 through 6, read with me. It reads like this. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My spirit was drained, as in the summer's heat. You know those Miami summers? Yeah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, in light of, as a result, conclusion, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. Let's get to work. The first cause, and again, not saying first in terms of this is always the case as much as this is where we're starting our conversation. The first cause for desire to dwindle before it disappears is sin. It's sin. Sin causes desire to dwindle before it disappears. And often, it is hidden sin. It is sin hidden in our hearts that causes desire for God, delight and devotion to disappear altogether. That's what we read, right? He said that when I, when I, when I hid my, my sin in my heart, these, these, these actions, these, these expressions of unbelief, these expressions of disobedience, these expressions not merely of breaking rules, but these expressions of violating relationship, because that's why the scriptures primarily talk about sin, the violation of relationship, whether it's vertical relationship with God, first and foremost, and above all else, or it is like horizontal relationship with others. The violation of that is sin. When I hid sin in my heart, it says, my bones became brittle. They were fragile. They were easily broken. Your hand was heavy on me. It felt like my strength, my spirit was drained like the summer humid heat in South Florida because sin was hidden in my heart. But it's not just 
sin hidden in the heart. It is sin at work in our lives. This is Isaiah 59, 1 through 3. It says this, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities, your sin, the storing up of, the consistent practicing of, your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. You check it. He says, this, this sin, not just hidden in your heart, but this sin that is at work in your life, it is causing separation. There's a, there's, there's, a, there's a distance there. Physically and spiritually, experientially, there's a distance there. We're not walking lockstep. There's separation. The first cause for the disappearing, dwindling of desire is sin. Consideration. The best way I could start this consideration off is by giving an example. Have you ever experienced hood Kool-Aid? Once you've experienced Kool-Aid from the hood, nothing else will do. No, who said that in Jesus' name? No crystal light, none of that. Once you've experienced hood Kool-Aid, it's, something happens. And so in the preparation of hood Kool-Aid, you, you, you have a packet, and on the packet it says three tablespoons of sugar. You, what is it? So you put the packet in, and then you just... Then you, it's like diabetes in a car. You know what I'm saying? It's just, and then you drink it at the very bottom of it is this syrupy goodness. So you want to be the last one to drink the Kool-Aid because you know that you're going to get that richness. Yes? Amen. I know you feel it, yeah. But if you've had hood Kool-Aid, the worst thing is to try and go from hood Kool-Aid to something like Crystal Light. And you're like, what is this? This tastes like backwash. It's nasty. What the scriptures intend for us to see is that when there's this backwash taste to our Christianity, it may be sin in our lives stealing the sweetness. It may be God's like, like grace to us when the sweetness is absent to say, direct your attention to present sin. That, that maybe you're not cherishing me. Maybe there's not activity that should be present in you, whether it is reading the scriptures, whether it is sharing the faith, whether it is encouraging one another and experiencing community, whether it is giving of your time, talent, and treasure and generosity. Maybe the absence of these things is because of the presence of sin. And God is saying, we should consider if sin has stolen the sweetness of our Christianity. Not merely consider, but confess. Confess. And what's powerful about these passages, particularly Psalm 32, is what we start to see is that the assurance of pardon gives courage for confession. This is what he said. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess. And you actually forgave. 
This is Isaiah again. He says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. There is nothing wrong with God. There is nothing in him that will prevent him from forgiving when we sin. Um, Gavin Ortland was the first person I heard say this, and I think it's powerful. Is he, he says the difference between religion and gospel is seen in what we do when we sin. And so religion says, I messed up, I've sinned, Dad's going to kill me. The gospel, understanding the good news of Jesus Christ, now behold the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. The gospel says, I messed up, I need to call Dad, because I know that it's not going to change his love for me. He's just going to pull me in, and he's going to press me deeper into his love. Sin may be stealing the sweetness, and we have to have the humility to examine well. Two actions to take in light of that, and really more cautions. The first is beware of the I'll get to it mentality. Procrastinating with sin in our lives. When we procrastinate with pursuing holiness, it's not just that we make it harder to heal. We're storing up pain in our heart. The next, not just beware of the delay, you know, the practicing of, um, I'll get to it, and procrastination. The next is to beware of the allure of selective transparency. Here's what I mean. My um, freshman year in college, great experience. I was battling on depression, though, but for another conversation. And I met two guys, some of my closest friends. We're still friends today. Um, and they invited me to be part of this college ministry, grew in the college ministry, et cetera. It was great, great, great. But what would happen is when I, when I would sin, when I'd violate relationships, when I'd go outside of God's design and I knew it, and I felt the need to finally confess, based on how I was feeling, I would choose who I was going to confess to. So one of my friends... He had, like, resting mean face. It was his eyebrows. They were, like, going like this. And so he always looked like he was angry. Sometimes he's a good dude, but, you know, a little rough around the edges. So if I confess to him, here's usually what happened. Mucci, what are you doing? Stop sinning. And he meant it in love, and it was good. And so I knew if I wanted the accountability, that's who I'm going to talk to. Because he's going to tell me the real, real. No sugarcoating, no collation. There was another friend. His eyebrows a little bit more curvier. A little bit more fluffy. Um, and <laughs> I would confess to him. He's like, come on, Mucci, we're all sinners, though, man. You know? God loves you. But it, it didn't really have teeth to it at times. It was just more like, yeah, you know, we all do. And depending on what I felt, I'd be selective with my transparency. And we all do the same. We select who we want to be transparent with based on the outcome that we're looking for. Might I say that is a dangerous practice? And we just got to be aware of that. And instead of being selective with our transparency, we need to bring our souls into the light. Because we bring it to Jesus and we bring it to others and we're like, yo, this is who I am. God loves me nonetheless. Let's go. Next, cause. It's not merely... Um, sin hidden in the hearts or at work in our lives. It's what Ecclesiastes 3 gives us. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says this, there is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. 
And then it goes on to list all the various seasons. There's a time for this, there's a time for that, and there's appropriate action based on the season that we're in. And the second cause of desire for God, like dwindling before it disappears, is seasons of life. Some of us are actually just in a season. And we need to be aware of that. We need to acknowledge, man, this may be a season. There are certain seasons in life that just affect our desire with God differently. If you have young kids, good luck trying to love Jesus. That junk is hard. For real, for real. You're like, man, I got to figure out a way to squeeze in some personal devotion time. So I got to get up at like 3, 4 a.m., but I'm really going to sleep at 1 a.m. Then I'm waking up in the middle of the night because I'm nursing. Good luck. You ever seen Taken? Where he's like, man, when I find you, blah, 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 and that guy responds, good luck. Like, good luck. Not just having young kids. Fair. If you are economically disadvantaged, good luck. When it seems like you're working all sorts of jobs just to put food on the table and make ends meet, do you know most of the theology that we have that's all rich and robust? It was written, one, in pain on the front lines of mission, but two, from the perspective of privilege. Where there's people, and I love Reformed theology, particularly Reformed theology, where there's people who they have nothing going on in their lives. There's no pain. There's just ease. And they're like, man, of course I can just wax eloquent about the, the Trinity and work through all of these theological concepts. That's all I'm thinking about. I have leisure time. I'm not having to wake up at 6 a.m. to go catch this butt. Come on. When you're economically disadvantaged, good luck. When you're in a new city and you're just trying to figure things out, good luck. There are certain seasons of life that affect our devotion significantly. And we just need to be aware of that and adjust accordingly. That's what wisdom does. And all of Ecclesiastes is trying to drive people to wisdom that allows them to navigate the affairs of life with the fear of God, rooting them. Understanding God is providentially ruling over all things and has a plan and a purpose for them specifically. But a consideration is to be cautious about how we engage with time. Ecclesiastes 7.10 is something all of us have experienced, I believe. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says this, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. And all of us have experienced some type of sense where we're just looking back and we're like, I wish we had it. And we try to recapture what was back there. And the problem is, is we're really idolizing and chasing the past instead of cherishing it. There's a difference. We cherish the past, we don't chase it. Track it with me? We want to be those men and, and women who, who are like super old and they're just in their lawn chair and nothing is good. It's grumpy and bitter. Man, Dr. Allman um, changed my life, man. He just, when and he really got it from Hedrick's, but you know. When your dream, like when your memories of the past are more exciting than your dreams of the future, you've begun to die. It's so true. 
God is constantly like laying in front of people the present and the future that increases into eternity. And he says, you can dream towards that. Don't be held captive to what was and then try to recreate it and then get mad when you can't because you're not me. Some of us have been trying to recreate the collegiate experience and you're a whole adult human. Working jobs with children. And so it's harder to find relationships. But we cherish the past. We don't chase it. But whatever the seasons, um, there's something that I think sits on this. John Piper helps us to see and then we move to Habakkuk. Piper says it this way. The stresses of life, the interruptions, the disappointments, the conflicts, the physical ailments, the losses, all of these may be well, may all of these may well be the very lens through which we see the meaning of God's word as never before. Paradoxically, the pain of life may open to us the word that becomes the pathway to joy. In other words, what he's saying is, what we see is, we see that every season is an opportunity to experience God differently and uniquely. If you have young kids, they grow, and then they talk, and then you see what's in Jesus' name. And you see what's really in their heart, like, oh, you... And so having to fight through, like, who's going to, like, you're not going to get that back, so we celebrate it. If you're engaged, you know, and you're like, oh, this is cute, like, we love you, like, this is pre-honeymoon honeymoon, you're not going to get that back. And so we celebrate, we're able to enjoy God differently in that moment. If you're single and it's cool, like, you're not going to get, does, it, does that make sense? Every season is an opportunity to see and experience God uniquely. So we set that on them. But whatever the season, particularly if they're challenging, Habakkuk 3 is our friend. This is a call to action. Let me read, though. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the field produces no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stall, yet I will. Yet I will. I will. I will celebrate the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer, for he enables me to walk on mountain heights for the choir director on string instruments. Habakkuk is such a powerful past. Like, and so the entire book of Habakkuk is this ongoing dialogue, this conversation with God, which really is expressed in prayer, but there's this conversation with God, and what you're seeing is Habakkuk's confusion and his frustration. He's interacting with who God is and what he knows God to be like, how God is holy, how God is pure, how God is just, and so he's interacting with who God is and the world around him that is confusing him, and so he's frustrated. And he's like, all right, God, you need to make this make sense. And as this progression continues, you get here and he says, listen, the circumstances aren't going to change. Yet I will. Resolve. Humility. Faith. That regardless of what the season is, particularly if it's a difficult one, I will root my heart in the very heart of God. Yet I will. But notice, this isn't boastful arrogance. This is acknowledging the only way this is possible 
because of you. This is what he says. It is the Lord that makes my feet like those of a deer. In other words, me remaining is fruit of you being faithful. So I'm uttering this in humility and sincerity. It's the action to remain. Let me give another consideration on that. Often, often, seasons where it's tough and desire um, for God is dwindling and it's at the doorstep of departure, those are mirror window moments where God wants to expose some stuff in us and expose some stuff in Him as well. And what I've seen personally and professionally is what God is exposing is that the edge of ourselves is actually where we're supposed to live. Because there's a way, particularly if you've been Christian for a very long time, where you've kind of learned enough of the Christian culture to try to wing excellence. You know, to just kind of do the things on cruise control. To, to create like a formulaic experience of Christianity. And Christianity is not a formula. It is not, I, I put in, you know, 10% and I get out blessing. I put in prayer and quiet time and now I'm walking on walk. Like that is, I don't, I don't know if you, that is not Christianity. Christianity is war. It is framework, like these rich principles like and claims like rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus says and trying to apply all of that in real life, in real time as you're walking with him together. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. He's just like, this is confusing. And, and when we get to the place where, where, where it just feels like we don't have it, we don't have the want to, the want to. God is often reminding us that Philippians 2 is our friend. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. That the want to that you had in the beginning, that was me anyway. And the want to that you're looking for now, I'm only going to be the one to produce it. And the want to that you'll have in the future, oh yeah, that's grace too. So just lean into me. Don't force anything. Foster it. Last um, cause. Um, it's actually attached a little bit to, to the second one. Uh, within seasons of life, there are significant life events and situations. There's stuff that just happens. And it's stuff that happens that is often sorrowful. And, and what we know, we know this. We know that we can't necessarily plan for significant life events and situations. But while we can't plan for them, the scriptures actually invite us to prepare for them. But how we prepare for them is through present pursuit. Our present pursuit is preparation for future possibilities of pain. Let me explain. This is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Instead, this is a contrast. Uh, he's contrasting a righteous man and a wicked man. He says, instead, the righteous, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in the season, and its leaves do not wither. Whatever he does, 
it prospers. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is indeed in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. Its seeds, its roots are toward a stream. It does not fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in the year of drought or cease producing fruit like a tree planted by water. In other words, what he's saying is this present pursuit of God is like driving roots down into his very heart. And so whatever is happening circumstantially, because I've presently pursued him, these roots are going so deep into the ground, so deep into the very heart of God, that even when the circumstances are hard, difficult, scorching earth type, I'm still sustained. Even if that sustaining is only but a drop in the bucket. Where it's not this huge experience of delight and devotion. It's just a drop. I'm just fixing my lips to pray. And that's all I got. Or I'm just showing up on Sundays believing God will do something. Or I'm just logging in on a Wednesday Zoom hoping that today is the day. Or I'm just calling somebody in faith. Believing it could be a life-transforming conversation. Just a drop. Because the roots have gone down deep. Even so, what I've learned is that in addition to present pursuit, we just pray, fam. We just pray. And this is what we pray for. Three things. First prayer. Jesus, allow honesty to be present and filled with humility. If there's a significant life event or situation that is altering desire for God, Jesus, allow honesty to be present and filled with humility. That filled with humility matters. There's a type of honesty that's really just rooted in arrogance, and so it's not honesty that's moving towards healing. It's that, man, this is where I'm at, fam. Maybe you said it. I know I've said it. And that's not really rooted in humility. There's no, like, I want more. It's just, yeah, this is where I'm at. What? what? And what God invites us is to have brutal honesty. So this is where I'm at, God. But to have where I'm at rooted in humility. God, this is where I'm at, but it's not, it's not where I want to be. There's a difference there. The second prayer is, Jesus, allow me to make sense of the situation and to make sense of you with you. That matters. That matters. What you, what you see when you, when you track the story of God and people who are just experiencing significant life situations, take Job. Job 31, it says this, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Is anybody listening? Things are so difficult right now. I feel alone. I feel trapped. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. My desire is dwindling. It's borderline. God, is anybody hearing me? Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had indictment written. I just want to know what's going on. Do you know what he says in there? Let the Almighty answer me. In other words, he's trying to make sense of the situation with God. And not merely just trying to make sense of the situation, trying to make sense of God. Psalm 73 brings that part out 
more. Psalm 73 says, Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? This is Asaph. Did I waste my life? Did I waste my youth being a Christian? Do you know what I could have done? Do you know the clubs I could have gone to? All of this stuff we talk about. Did I waste it all? You know how much money I gave to the church? I should have invested that in Bitcoin. I would have been good. Did I waste it all? Go Sheba. That was for you, Vulcans. You're welcome. For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. I have decided to say these things out loud. I'm not hiding them anymore. I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. The this is not just the situation. The this is God. Because God, you seem like a liar right now. And then this is what he says. Until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places and you make them fall into ruin. He's like, I'm not just understanding the circumstances. I'm understanding you and how you're at work and who you are and what you're doing. I am making sense of the situation and I'm making sense of you with you. Making sense of God with God is a practice of the mature. That's what we do when we're mature. When we're immature, what we try to do is we try to make sense of God apart from Him. And that is hit or miss, often miss, and leads us to pain or pride. But we go to God with, with fear and trembling and like, God, just... I need you to make sense of yourself and, and you've revealed yourself through the scriptures and you've revealed yourself through people. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into that and pray for you to speak. Last, last one. Jesus helped me to believe and experience my personal joy and renewal as a group project. That's the prayer. This is Galatians 6 to carry one another's burdens in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. It is borderline terrifying how God binds our personal joy and renewal to our community experience. It is also why it is very dangerous, and we said this during the Q&A last week, it's very dangerous that when we're in seasons where desire for God is, is dwindling or disappearing, it's very dangerous to get around people who are actually not going to fan the flame of health. Because we will, we will be who our closest community is. That's all of us. All of us will be our closest community because God has wired that into the framework of humanity. And what God has invited us to believe is that it is in these moments where desire is, is, is dwindling that he, he should say, there's a community that you may have to fight to be a part of because we're all broken and frail. But there's a community that, that can push you, push me, for his personal experiences of joy and renewal. And so we pray that that God would make it so. I want to close by drawing our attention to a passage that um, I think is another prayer. There's a contextual dynamic here. This is written to a specific group of people at a specific point in time. Um, and as a promise to them, 
But one of the things that we believe in the scriptures is that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so though there is a very contextual, real-time dynamic to them, there's these deeper experiences in Jesus that God wants us to have through the promises we see in the scriptures. And much of the scriptures were written in pain. People just trying to figure out life and wrestle with the God of the universe and holding on to promises like we have here. And so I'm going to read this over us in prayer in closing. Jeremiah 31. First one reads like this. At that time, it's a good pause, at that time where God's wisdom and providence has said enough. At that time, this is the Lord's declaration. I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. There will be this unique experience of closeness and covenant. We will walk together. There will be delight. There will be devotion. There will be desire. They will experience me at that time. People have been scattered, but at the right time. Verse 2, this is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword found favor in the wilderness. When Israel went to find rest, the Lord appeared to them from far away. I have loved you. God's words to you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. Again, I will build you so that you will be rebuilt. Virgin Israel, you will take up the tambourines again. And you will go out in joyful dancing again. You will plant vineyards again on the mountains of Samaria. And the planters will plant and will enjoy the fruit For there will be a day when watchmen will call out in the hill country of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Amen.